0: welcome to the sex and psychology podcast i am your host dr justin lay miller i am a social psychologist and research fellow at the kinsey institute and author of the book tell me what you want the science of sexual desire and how it can help you improve your sex life if your partner became sexually or romantically interested in someone else how would you feel for many people especially those in monogamous relationships the first response would probably be jealousy It is often assumed that jealousy is the default reaction in these situations, even within the field of psychology. For example, in a lot of commonly used measures of jealousy, people are told to think about this exact circumstance and are then asked whether it would make them feel more sexually jealous or more emotionally jealous, without even giving them the option of saying that they wouldn't feel jealous at all or that they felt other emotions. The reality is that for some people, particularly those in consensually non-monogamous relationships, they often feel positive emotions in response to their partner developing interest in or relationships with others, a phenomenon known as compersion. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be exploring factors that can both promote and inhibit compersion, whether you can learn to feel compersion if this is something you don't currently experience, how compersion and jealousy are linked, as well as whether you need to feel compersion in order to be successful and happy with polyamory. I am joined by Dr. Sharon Flicker, a clinical psychologist who researches intimate relationships. She is an assistant professor of psychology at California State University, Sacramento. This is going to be a fascinating and informative conversation. Stick around, and we're gonna jump in right after the break. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTi offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Sharon, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast.
1: Hi, Justin. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a relationship researcher. So what is it that drew you to this area?
1: That's a great question. That kind of evolved over time. I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist when I was in high school. And specifically, I wanted to be a family therapist. And that was my goal throughout all of grad school until I got my PhD. I mostly focused in families rather than in intimate relationships. And then over time, I just kind of began to drift closer to intimate relationships. I will say that I took a psychology of relationships course in college. That was probably one of my favorite courses. And that's kind of how it got, I got into it.
0: And, you know, I've heard that story or something similar from a lot of people where there was this foundational course that they took in college on relationships or sexuality that just awakened or sparked their interest in this area. And it makes sense because these are topics that in say high school, we don't really tend to get any training on. And many of us don't realize that there's a whole science built around these topics. So when you kind of open up that door for the first time, I think we're often flooded with all of these questions about, oh, what, what can I learn now? And (laughs) what are the questions that haven't yet been asked? So I know that that's been an experience for a lot of folks. So thanks for sharing that. And one of the things that you study within relationships specifically is consensual non-monogamy and this phenomenon I mentioned at the top of the show called compersion. Now you co-authored a paper recently in the archives of sexual behavior on this topic, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. And you recruited a sample of people who had experience with both consensual non-monogamy and compersion. So as a starting point, how did you define conversion for purposes of this study? What does that term or concept mean to you?
1: Yeah, great question. Actually, I did not define conversion for the purposes of the study. And the reason is, is that one of my questions was asking my participants to define what conversion meant to them. And an earlier study that we published, so like last year, We published the results of that earlier qualitative piece where folks talked about what what conversion looked like in their relationships. And just briefly, I can say that it was generally people talked about positive emotions, joy, contentment, excitement, for some sexual excitement, and also some love, validation, pride. So generally positive emotions that they were experiencing in relation to their intimate partner's relationships with other intimate partners
0: so when i was reading through your paper this was one of the questions that stood out i was wondering if you had defined it for participants and whether or not that then creates a selection effect for people who experience compersion in a very specific way so i'm actually glad that you didn't define it for them and you let them self-define because i think a lot of times when we define things for participants in say the advertising or recruitment materials for a study they might have different understandings of the terminology than we do. And then you might be excluding certain people who might have a different understanding of it. So it sounds like in the earlier paper that you did, there seems to be a bit of variability in terms of the specific types of positive emotion. So positive emotion is kind of the key defining point of conversion but whether it's love or sexual excitement or joy or pleasure you know these can all be a little bit different so i guess that means the experience of conversion doesn't necessarily look exactly the same for everyone right
1: absolutely we actually took that a little bit further where we, we created items because the whole purpose was to create a scale to measure conversion quantitatively and um Based on you know dozens of items, we then did an, an exploratory factor analysis, confirmatory factor analysis, you know statistics to look at themes. And what we found was that there was three main types of compersion. There was compersion that was kind of a, a lower level joy or contentment about their partner's relationships with more established metamors. So a metamor is someone that your partner is intimately involved with that you are not, but that's how we defined it. So there's like a low level positive feeling towards like I guess I should say a less intense positive emotion towards their partners' relationships with longer term established metamors. Then there's kind of this like higher intensity excitement. You know, maybe giddiness about their partner's potential involvement with newer partners, or just you know, new partners that are just starting off or a hookup that's kind of temporary. And then the third one was the sexual excitement. And you know, like you're saying, the point is not everyone experiences all three types of conversion, and not everyone experiences each type in a similar way or to the same extent. So someone may be very high on you know, they're feeling really positive about their their partner's relationship with another partner. But experience no sexual excitement around that and and that's a that 's also a, an experience of conversion
0: I love that you 've studied this, and your goal was to create a scale because I was doing some research on polyamory a while back, and one of the things that we asked about in that study was conversion, but there were no established scales at the time, so we were kind of you know, flying in the dark in terms of how do we ask about this? So I'm looking forward to my next study where we can actually use your scale and look at these different types of compersion because I think that this really advances our understanding of it by showing that compersion isn't just one thing. One of the things that you looked at in this study were the factors that facilitated compersion or made it easier to experience. And you asked people to describe this in their own words, and then you looked and coded for themes that emerged. So what did you find there? What are the kinds of things that make it easier to feel compersion?
1: Yeah. So participants had a lot to say about this and we did our best to kind of organize them into themes. And And I would say there's three categories of themes. One is kind of individual or interpersonal factors. And then there's relational factors between themselves and that particular partner that we're talking about. And then there's also how they relate with their metamor. So in terms of individual factors, participants talked about things like having good mental health, being in a good, in a good headspace that if they're particularly anxious or depressed, that could make it harder for them to feel good about their partner's relationships. They talked about feeling really good about themselves, like being able to recognize their own self-worth, kind of having high self-esteem. They talked about thinking about things in a particular way. So just the recognition that they don't have to be their partner's everything and that what their partner does outside of their dyadic relationship doesn't influence you know, doesn't necessarily mean anything about their particular relationship or it doesn't mean something negative. They also talked about feeling non-attached to an outcome. So when they're just kind of, Living in the moment, being mindful, not really wanting one particular outcome, then they're able to better experience compersion. Some people talked about particular personality characteristics that they had. So being like really open to new experiences or being more agreeable, you know, making, liking to make people happy or liking to see people happy. And then they also talked about having their needs met outside of their relationship and whether that means having other intimate partners and or also having a really full social life with people who can meet their needs for entertainment, their needs for stimulation, their needs for emotional support outside of that one particular partner is also really important. And so they also talked about being able to manage either having low jealousy or being able to manage their jealousy as being really important. And then finally, they had some Some differing views, actually, about whether this was something innate that they just were born with or whether this was something that they had to purposefully and intentionally cultivate.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of different factors that can affect compersion. And part of it has to do with the self, part of it has to do with the partner or relationship. And then there's also the partners, partners. So it's a complex phenomenon in terms of the factors that can facilitate compersion. And by the same token, you know, on the flip side of this, you looked at the factors that can inhibit compersion. And so, you know, it, it's the same set of factors, you know, the individual, the partner, the partner's partners, all of these things can be promoters or inhibitors of conversion, depending upon the specific circumstances. Now, I wanted to talk about something that you just brought up there where you mentioned that some people said compersion is an innate experience for them and some people kind of said it's learned. So this is something that I and others have been curious about is if you don't experience compersion, is that something you can learn to feel over time? So based on what your participants were saying, does it seem like it's possible to teach yourself to feel compersion if it's something you've never felt before? And if so, how do you do that?
1: Mm, Yeah, so I would say my participants, some participants were very clear that this is something that they had to have a very purposeful mindset in order to achieve that it was it was a decision that they made that they could either feel bad about their partner's relationship with other partners, or they could feel good about it and feel that feel good that they had a, a role in their partner's happiness. Now, getting into how they did it, that's a little bit more difficult based on what participants' responses were. I can I can think that it's again that non-attachment to outcome, um, and so being really open, not having one single idea of how things are supposed to be. Participants, one participant was very articulate about really active listening, so listening to their partners experience with their metamors through their partner's eyes and really trying to wholeheartedly understand their partner's experience and perspective and not try and kind of filter it through their own lens of how they would feel or how they think their partner should feel. So really, you know, you could think of it as as intentional empathy of really active listening to their partner and trying to get into their partner's mind and experience through their partner's eyes.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense because we have a tendency to just filter everything through our own lens our own perspective and oftentimes if say a partner is interested in somebody else or just sexually attracted to someone else we can sort of spiral out of control and kind of let our mind wander and think about all these different things that it might mean and maybe it means they're not attracted to me anymore or they want to leave the relationship and so it is a conscious choice in terms of whether you want to go down that path or whether you really want to try and understand your partner's perspective and where they're coming from and how they're feeling so you kind of need some radical empathy it sounds like in order to learn conversion, if that's something that you don't currently experience but it certainly sounds like there's variability where some people might just have personality styles that predispose them to making it easier to feel this emotion whereas for other people it might be kind of a hard-fought battle in terms of getting there
1: absolutely
0: now something i've talked about on the show before is this link between compersion and jealousy And I first became interested in this when I did a study a few years back where we had a sample of about 3,000 polyamorous individuals, and we had a ton of questions in there about jealousy and compersion, including some write-in responses. And just like you found, you know, when you said people had a lot to say, people in our study had a lot to say as well. And we had some people who wrote in for our questions about jealousy, that it's an emotion that they've never experienced before. They just don't even know what that would feel like. And I think that's part of the reason why some people characterize compersion and jealousy as being polar opposites, where you either experience one or the other. But we also had some participants, and you did as well, who said that they can experience both jealousy and compersion. So how do you see this link between jealousy and compersion?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, exactly what you're saying that for some folks, they said, I've never experienced jealousy, I'm not a jealous person. And they attributed their ability to experience compersion to that. Other people said they 100% can experience jealousy and compersion at the same time about the same event, just the same way that we might experience, you know, joy and sadness about An event, you know, a graduation or a wedding, you know, it's the end of something, but it's the beginning of something new. So we can feel two ways about the same event. And sometimes this isn't from my research, but previous research has indicated that some people can kind of play erotically with jealousy. And so take something that a lot of people experience in a negative manner and kind of use it in a a way that might be very positive for it. I think one thing that did come up over and over again with my participants is that it's hard to experience compersion when the jealousy isn't well-managed. So you can experience jealousy, but you also can learn how to manage your jealousy so that it's not you know, overwhelming. And I think that's the important piece.
0: It sounds like you can think of jealousy and compersion as existing on two different continuums, right? And so you could be very high on one, very low on the other, or moderate on both, high on both. You know, people can sort of have any combination of these to emotions. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about some people eroticizing jealousy, right? I my mind is wandering as a social psychologist and I'm thinking about the broader literature showing that strong emotions can sometimes be mistaken for sexual arousal or attraction or they can amplify Sexual arousal, because you've got that sort of carryover or residual physiological arousal that goes from one situation into the next. And so I think there are theoretical ways where that could make sense. But I can also see how, for other people, jealousy could be extremely stressful and might put a damper on desire. So they're not going to eroticize it, right? It's all about the individual and kind of how they interpret those emotions and i don't think there's just one right way to experience any of this you know it's not to say that if you experience jealousy you're a bad person or if you experience compersion you're a really good person right i think we tend to put a lot of value judgments on these emotions but everybody's emotional experience is different and it's valid wouldn't you say
1: absolutely and that was another thing that came up a lot from my participants particularly when i asked them what else would you like me to know about compersion they said that compersion is not essential for successful polyamory and that there's a lot of pressure out there for people to experience compersion. That people often put a lot of pressure on themselves when they don't experience compersion or when they don't experience it 100% of the time. And that's really, I think my participants really want to push back against that idea and kind of, it's a nice bonus, but it's not essential, right? It can help it can help. It can be a positive feeling. That's good. To, that feels good to experience. It can also kind of be a lubricant for the social relationships. So, you know, if your partner's partner is experiencing compersion about your relationship with your partner, then that can make your relationship with that partner easier. But that is not essential. It's just kind of a nice bonus.
0: I think that's such an important point because there are lots of popular media articles and portrayals of polyamory and consensual non-monogamy that I think tend to present this overly idealized view of these relationships where everyone is happy all the time there's no jealousy or conflict and everybody experiences compersion but when you start looking at the research and data you see that people's experiences are so much more variable and you know just as there can be pressure on people in monogamous relationships to conform to a certain mold and feel like they have to approach relationships in a certain way i think there can also be that pressure on people in consensually non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships or they feel like they have to uphold some certain relationship ideal and so you know, for as much as we talk about consensual non-monogamy being a way of breaking the mold, I think for some people, they just end up feeling like they have to conform to a different type of mold, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I see that a lot. And I think it also may be even compounded by the fact that, you know, polyamory is stigmatized, so there can even be more pressure to present their relationships in a positive
0: light. Yeah, I think that's so true that, you know, there can be this pressure when you are this stigmatized. Minority group to try and present yourself in the best light possible at all times so that you don't further compound that already pre existing stigma. With all the different factors that can affect conversion, It seems like in a consensually non-monogamous relationship, your feelings might not be entirely consistent across time and across partners. So you might feel more compersion in some situations than others. There can be times in your life where maybe it comes a little easier and times where it's a bit harder to feel. And I think that's so important to acknowledge because people in relationships are often very hard on themselves when they don't live up to a certain standard or ideal that they've set. So if you struggle with compersion at times in a non-monogamous relationship, that doesn't make you a bad person. It also doesn't mean that non-monogamy isn't right for you. So Sharon, can you speak a little bit to this sort of ebb and flow of compersion that might happen and maybe what you might do in a situation where you start struggling with it a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I think that compersion varies probably not just over time. I mean, across partners as well and across time within each of those partners, depending on maybe who's entering or exiting the polycule. And the polycule is all like the web of social networks, social relationships that are connected through intimate partnerships among consensually non-monogamous individuals. So yeah, I think it can vary quite a bit. I think one of the things that folks have talked about a lot is communication with their partner. And so Increasing communication with their partner, or maybe communicating about particular things. Sometimes communicating about jealousy can help that person manage their jealousy, which may open up space for compersion. Another thing is really okay. feeling like their needs are being met, that they feel very secure in their relationship. They feel loved by their partner and that, you know, they are they know when they're going to see their partner again, that their needs for time and attention are being met by that partner. And so if someone's not experiencing compersion who, you know, had experienced compersion previously those might be things that you think about is are my needs being met like what's what am what am i missing right here right now and then let me communicate this to my partner and see how we might make some changes and it may not be about changes between you know the partner with their metamor at all it could very much be the changes in their relationship that maybe they need to have you know a date night set up date night or something like that that can kind of make sure that the needs of that person are being met so that they may have more space for experiencing conversion.
0: Absolutely and I think this is why we say communication is key in all relationships but you really need to have excellent communication in any type of consensually non-monogamous relationship because the relationship circumstances and dynamics are things that can change over time and you as a person can change over time in terms of what it is that you need and how you're feeling and if you had some relationships that dissolved and your partner has started some new relationships that can really shift the dynamic of the overall relationship that you have with them and so it's all about having those regular check-ins with your partner making sure that everyone's needs are being met and finding solutions for when jealousy or other emotions like this arise. Now, one of the findings that I thought was really interesting from your research was that some people said they felt compersion more easily in some relationships than others, and specifically that they were more likely to feel it with a primary partner or a partner that they had been with a really long time or a partner who lives geographically close as opposed to somebody they're in a long-distance relationship with. So why do you think these types of relationships might facilitate compersion or make it a little easier to experience?
1: That's a great question. I think it might be about, and this is just me guessing, but it might be about security in the relationship. So you may feel more secure in a longer relationship than in a shorter relationship with someone that you're able to see as often as you would like to see and often long distance, you don't get to see people as much as you would like to because of the distance. And, you know, if if you are in a relationship that you've labeled or your partner has labeled as primary relationship, that's a clear indication that you're being prioritized over other partners. And so I think that can lead to those feelings of security that can enable experience of conversion.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And as you were talking, I was also thinking about some of our other research on polyamory, where we asked people to describe the structure of their relationship. And, you know, it was really fascinating to look at the geometry of polyamory, if you will, where people kind of map out their relationship. The most common arrangement that people describe was a V, where you've got one person who has branches to two other partners, but those partners are not connected to one another and then you also have triangles or triads where you have three people all of whom are in relationships with each other you've got there were rectangles and trapezoids and you know one participant described their relationship as an asterisk with a rectangle bolted onto it, which I found fascinating. Right? <laughs> so, what that tells us is that you know these relationships can all look very different, and I think that means the compersion dynamics are all going to look very different as a result of that variability in structure. So, I think. That's just something we have to keep in mind whenever we're talking about this and how emotions are experienced is that the dynamics, the structures of all of these relationships are so radically different. So that's necessarily going to produce a wide range of experiences. And another interesting finding from your paper is that the relationship that people have with their partners, partners, their metamors seems to be really important for feeling compersion, as you mentioned. And you know, if you don't have a great relationship with that metamor, that can make it harder to feel compersion for your partner. If you have a really good relationship with your metamor, maybe it makes it easier. So I guess I'm just curious, if you're struggling in terms of your relationship with your metamor or metamors, what can you do about that? You know, I think it's a common thing that arises, but people often struggle with what do I do in this situation if I don't like my partner's partner, and, and that's sort of getting in the way of or interfering with my relationship with my primary partner, or they might not consider them to be primary, but how do you navigate those complex relationship dynamics?
1: Yeah, that's, that's another really important part is the relationship or non-relationship with their metamor. And I think there's a few components of it, which is how much knowledge do they have about their partner's relationship with their metamor, how close they feel to their metamor, how much do they trust their metamor, and then also, do they think that their metamorph's relationship with their partner is a healthy one? And those all have like different factors. Some of the partners could, I mean, some of the participants talked about really experiencing compersion, but not really being interested in, in getting to know the metamorph very well. Whereas other people kind of practiced, you know, kitchen table poly, where, you know, I'm very close to my metamorphosis. They're a good friend of mine. And so there's wide variability and closeness. I, I will mention a follow up study that we've done where we did a more quantitative analysis of these factors and the best predictor of conversion was how they how close they felt to their metamorph and how much knowledge they had about their metamorph and so sometimes it can be hard if you if your metamorph doesn't want to engage with you you may not ever get a chance to know that metamorph or have a, a relationship with that metamorph or even get to see what you think of the person, and that can be a really different experience than you've met your metamorph, and you really don't like them at all. Both can be difficult in terms of experiencing compersion, because part some a lot of people did talk about compersion as needing to know what was going on, needing to know what was healthy, needing to know what was positive in order to have those positive feelings. And I think to some extent, sometimes you don't get control over all of that, and sometimes patients giving that metamorph autonomy to experience. To choose whether to engage with you or not is important. And sometimes over time, you can build a relationship slowly. And sometimes you just have to let it go.
0: It sounds like as with everything, there's no one size fits all solution. And it's very much going to depend on the dynamics of that specific relationship, because there is just so much variability across all of these different partnerships. So I wish we could offer like, (laughs) here's the exact thing that you should do if this situation arises, but you kind of have to figure it out in terms of what's going to work for you and your partner and your partner's partner and, you know, any other relationships that are in the mix. So I'm really glad that you brought up this idea that compersion isn't necessarily essential to polyamory. And that was what I sort of wanted to close on here. As I mentioned, you know, there are so many people who will say that compersion is just sort of this natural part of polyamory or that you have to be able to experience it in order to be successful, whatever success means when it comes to a relationship, when it comes to polyamory. So what What's the takeaway that you want people to have from this overall body of research? How do you want people to think differently about conversion?
1: You know, I think one of my collaborators said it really well, Dr. Michelle Vaughn, and I also want to mention my other collaborator, Dr. Mary Tween, who were both essential to this research, that Everything that we can think about in terms of what might facilitate compersion are really good principles of relationships across the board, no matter what kind of relationship you're in. Having trust for your partner, feeling like your needs are met, feeling like secure and loved by your partner, having good communication. And so, you know, I think focusing on the process of the relationship rather than this goal of experiencing compersion may actually facilitate the, the conditions under which conversions is more likely to occur. And, and whenever possible, try to focus on your partner's experience in a, in a truly empathetic way, which I think is just good principles for relationships in general.
0: I love that. And I think that's a great way to end this program. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Sharon. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Sure. I do have a website, a lab website. You can find it probably by googling Sharon Flickr at California State University for Sac- at Sacramento. And you can follow me on Twitter. And always, you can email me at flickr, F-L-I-C-K-E-R at edu.
0: And I will be sure to include links in the show notes to everything you just shared. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lehmiller and Instagram at Justin J. Lehmiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.